I remember having a phone call with my with my mom. I was mentally just breaking down. I was I had never been so lost playing the game of baseball. It truly was a remarkable transformation. It was totally mental. You can't deny that he's going to be talked about for a long time, even in his early 60s and 70s. This is Dynasty in the Woods, Episode 6, Transformations. My name is Josh Warden. On the last episode, we walked through four significant mental skills methods that helped Oregon State baseball players reframe their mental approach to the game. Today we'll be talking more extensively about how certain players use these methods to completely transform who they were as a baseball player and sometimes even as a person. If you haven't already, by the end of this episode I think you'll see that these mental skills techniques are not just vague theories but concrete methods that produce tangible change. And if you don't believe me, take a look at Ben Wetzler. Ben Wetzler began his OSU career in 2011 and quickly encountered a crossroads. I knew that I needed something after that freshman year because I had never failed to that extent. After a senior year at Clackamas High School with a 0.32 ERA, Wetzler came to OSU and posted an ERA of 4.66, which for many players isn't all that bad, especially considering the transition from high school to college, but for Ben, giving up 14 times as many runs from one year to the next, he didn't know how to handle it mentally. I still look back at that, and that was the season that kind of rocked me. It was like, oh, dang Every player has to adjust to the higher level of competition in college, but Wetzler had a rude awakening just six games into his freshman year. I remember the start, it was in Corpus Christi, Texas. I was like, okay, this podunk D1's not gonna come out and do anything against me. I just had a really great start. I was riding high, I was a freshman on the rotation, and I go out there and I think I give up like eight or nine in the first two innings, and I'm like, okay. Ben's memory is pretty good, although he's a little harder on himself than it really was. Only seven runs he allowed, six of them earned in three innings. No, that's not a great stat line. In fact, he allowed more hitters to reach base than he got out, and OSU ended up losing that game by one run. Wetzler took it pretty hard. Ended up on the boardwalk there in Corpus, listening to Eye of the Tiger for like three hours, running up and down the boardwalk, trying to mentally figure it out. Am I good enough to be here? Blah, blah, blah. So that's probably exactly when I approached Greg. That's Greg Warburton, the mental health counselor who'd been working with OSU baseball players for several years at this point. Wetzler approached Warburton and told him everything that was going on mentally. My mind my freshman year was just, I'd, I'd ride the emotions. If I gave up a double, I'd be worrying about, I have to keep him from scoring. My ERA's already this. I can't let my ERA keep going higher. The next year, he comes up and said, I want to work with you this year. And here's what Ben said, I'm tired of fighting my head trying to stay calm. I'd like something I could physically do to dependably relax. Greg Warburton helped Ben Wetzler find a process that wouldn't force him to shut his brain off, but he also wouldn't have to handle 10 things at once. What helped was the idea of anchor statements from last episode, or positive performance phrases, whatever you want to call them, a short phrase he could repeat to himself and just concentrate on that. On the mound, he chose a positive performance phrase, pound down. So he used that phrase, and he only had one job mentally, focus-wise, and that was hold that thought pitch by pitch. Once he limited his focus and stopped worrying about stats, Wetzler and his stats blossomed. After his freshman year, his ERA dropped each season, starting at 4.66 his freshman year and finishing with a school record 0.78 ERA his senior year. From there on out, I could care less about stats. My sophomore through senior year, it was, I want to win that title, I want to win every game, and I want to embarrass every hitter that walks up to the plate. Let's go one step further in Oregon State's timeline as we get closer to 2018. Ben Wetzler finished his college career in 2014 right as another OSU pitcher was starting. Jake Thompson overlapped with Wetzler for one season. Just as Ben had cracked the rotation as a freshman a few years earlier, Jake Thompson got some playing time as a freshman, and similar to Wetzler, he also had his struggles that year. It was definitely up and down, for sure. I start off the season really well, and part of the way through, I struggled. 
I mean, I probably never told anyone this, but there's one game I got pulled out of the first inning, got lit up, and basically went home and cried. I was embarrassed, and then I started to question myself, like, all right, am I actually good, or did I just get lucky? Every comeback story needs a rock-bottom moment, and Jake's negative thinking had gotten him pretty low. Then came the turnaround. I shouldn't be worrying about all these things, and that's when I met Greg. And, like, I saw it as if you go to him, that means you're not good mentally, and I was way wrong. Jake felt that going to a mental health counselor could be an admission of weakness, and maybe it is, but pretending he was fine wasn't going to fix anything, so he started meeting with Greg Warburton. The first two to three meetings, if I'm being honest, were just me talking smack about the coaches. Similar to how Ben Wetzler clashed with the coaching staff early on, Jake Thompson also didn't love being around the coaches when he wasn't playing well, so he unloaded all that for Greg Warburton. Just that, just me telling him that and allowing him to just listen, helped out a ton. Jake Thompson aired out all of his frustrations, got it all out in the open, and felt better doing so. Greg Warburton just listened. Then, when the time was right, Greg started to offer some methods Jake could use when he was on the mound. The only advice Jake Thompson had ever gotten in terms of handling his mental game was to stop thinking so much. And that advice was unhelpful. The problem is not me thinking. The problem is me not thinking. Like I get this grayness or a fog where I'm just going through the actions, muscle memory, not controlling anything really. And I think that's what Greg helped me is, you know, it's okay to think. Greg helped Jake Thompson guide his thinking rather than resist his thinking. And that had a remarkable impact on his confidence. I started believing I was the best pitcher in the nation. Started believing I had the best slider. Started believing I threw the hardest. And whether I did or not, I mean, that's up for debate, but like, I felt like I did. If there's a debate about Jake Thompson being the best pitcher in the nation in 2017, he's got a pretty good case. He led the country with 14 wins that year. As you can see, both Ben Wetzler and Jake Thompson had completely renewed confidence in themselves and were so sure of their potential, they stopped worrying about the possibility of failure. Greg Warburton has a phrase for this. He calls it the do zone of performance, which is the practice of identifying what you're worried you might do and replacing it with what you do want to do. So I teach that we literally have to replace. It's not enough to just stop the don't miss the corner. In my little system, you replace it with how you do intend to perform. How I see that is just basically controlling what you can control. Tyler Malone, a sophomore in 2018, could look back at stories like Ben Wetzler's and stand on the shoulders of giants, in a sense, learning about these concepts from all the players before him. Malone learned about the do zone of performance partly by Greg Warburton retelling Ben Wetzler's story, and Tyler Malone has remembered it ever since. It was like two mental cues that he would stick to every single pitch that redirects your energy and your focus into two things that are super controllable and two things that you can do and can repeat to put yourself in the best situation possible. That's what Tyler Malone learned, to shift his focus to something simple he could control and put his energy into that. Another thing Tyler did that modeled Ben Wetzler's career comes from one of Greg Warburton's other pithy phrases. It's called soaking in the good stuff. It's a response to how much time is spent analyzing bad plays and focusing on the negative. Usually like in baseball, when you start looking at video, it's usually because things are going wrong and you want to look at that to see what you can do different. The issue that Tyler Malone found goes back to how replaying negative thoughts only makes things worse. What I started realizing was that when you keep viewing that video, you keep affirming negative actions, negative swings, negative thoughts every time you watch that. And so me and Greg were talking about how about you watch 30 minutes of you doing what you want to do. It's turning the coin over from analyzing and evaluating mistakes to immersing in the success moments. In other words, soaking in the good stuff. Years earlier, Ben Wetzler started doing this same thing. Oh yeah, I have a playlist of that on my phone. I used to watch my best starts, just a few pitches of them, and I put together just a little playlist of me strutting around the mound, feeling myself a little bit. It gives you those that same juice, that same flow. You start to get the chills a little bit thinking about that. 
Greg Warburton preaches you have to not just avoid negative thoughts, but replace them. Ben Wetzler watched those videos to do exactly that. When I slip away from that stuff, those negative thoughts can slip in and replace it really easy. But if you just force yourself, force feed yourself those positive thoughts, they tend to start happening. It's basically a self-fulfilling prophecy. So fast forward to 2018. Leading up to the College World Series, Tyler Malone did this same thing. He went back and re-watched film from earlier in the season when he had a streak of five games in a row with a home run. So for me, it was, you know, watching videos of me being successful and just solidifying that was me and that is something that I can do instead of focusing on the things that you can't do. Tyler watched and rewatched those great hitting games he had prior to the World Series. Tyler had three home runs in that World Series. What if baseball was more than just a game, more than entertainment? What if the next strikeout could feed a family of five for a whole year? The next home run could provide safe drinking water for an entire village. The next win could help lift an entire community out of poverty. What if we could use baseball to restore hope and save lives? Partnering with Major League Baseball, Food for the Hungry is helping impoverished communities through the Striking Out Poverty Campaign. You can join top-level baseball players who are helping with relief efforts in the Dominican Republic, not to mention Food for the Hungry's other amazing campaigns that are changing lives all over the globe. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider donating to Food for the Hungry at fh.org. That's fh.org. The mental side of gymnastics was, it was my biggest obstacle. Isis Lowry finished her stellar gymnastics career at OSU in 2020. She's a perfect example of how the mental issues we've talked about are far more prevalent than just on the baseball field. I struggled with mental blocks and fears. It held me back in ways that was so frustrating. I almost quit or retired. It was crippling fear. Like I would go to the gym and just cry. Like I would pretend to be sick sometimes so I wouldn't have to go to gym. Isis is primarily talking about her time before college, although some of the issues cropped up at OSU as well. The problems were not only difficult mentally, but put her in danger physically. I would balk. So that's when, you know, you attempt a skill, you don't go, you pull out of it. And that's like when things get more dangerous, because if you stop halfway, it's not great. So for me, like I would balk a lot. And everyone, my coaches, my teammates, they'd be like, well, why, like, why do you stop? And I'm like, I don't know. I was just, I didn't know what I was scared of. The first step in dealing with fear is self-awareness, right? We've heard Kyle Novak and others say that, and you don't have to be a psychologist to see that Isis needed to identify her fears and then find a method to handle them. I just couldn't even function because my brain was just in overdrive. So that's where the mindfulness and meditation kicked in because when I was able to break it down and like focus on each part of the skill individually rather than one whole thing, it made it a lot easier for me to control my mind and my thoughts. Isis used a form of meditation and mindfulness, and that wasn't all. Just like the baseball players, she also did a similar breathing and visualization exercise. As I was breathing, I'm visualizing my skills. We were using our bodies inside of our brains. I know that doesn't really make any sense, but like as I'm visualizing, I'm like, what does it feel like? What does the gym smell like? Where are we? What's going on? Who's around me? Isis says her summary doesn't make sense, but if you've been listening to everyone else talk about visualization, her description is maybe the best we've heard. We used our bodies inside our brains, and that's the whole idea. Doing mental repetitions that feel as close to the real thing as possible, even imagining the smell of the gym or the feel of the batter's box, so that when that moment comes around, you've been through it countless times. The gymnasts and the baseball players each did their meditations separately, each within their own programs, but there was at least one link between the two teams, in the summer after the 2018 baseball season ended, some of the baseball players came to speak with the gymnastics team to share their stories of how meditation and visualization helped them. And gymnasts like Isis had already started to focus on mental preparation, so this wasn't the first rodeo for them, but hearing the baseball players talk was still quite helpful. 
So I'm really grateful the baseball team did come in because I think hearing them break down their fears or their, you know, things that are holding them back. I was like, oh, it's not just about our sports. It's about like literally controlling like our minds. And that was a real shift for me because it was like, oh my gosh, this isn't just a gymnastics thing. It's a me thing. And that gave me hope because it was like, I can use this outside of gymnastics. It's not like I'm just wasting my time. By the way, once the gymnastics team invested heavily in mindfulness and visualization, the very next season in 2019, the Beavers reached the NCAA championships and finished sixth in the nation for the program's best season in 24 years. Coming back to baseball, there's actually one more mental skills technique we haven't even gotten to yet. And even though we've already talked through some of Tyler Malone's story, this technique was maybe the biggest thing Tyler learned from Greg Warburton. His main thing is, it's called EFT training and also can be called tapping. This is method number five, most commonly known as tapping. Remember how much negative thinking impacts a baseball player? As a mental health counselor, Greg Warburton sees not just a philosophical reason why negative thoughts are so harmful, but a physical one. He's a big believer that your thoughts and everything are incorporated into your cells. According to Warburton, cell biology research and brain science tells us that every thought we have affects every cell in our body. Warburton says human beings have meridians, or basically pathways of energy, that run all around the body like a map. One study was they injected dye into lines of energy or meridians that that dye would travel, that meridian. If they just injected dye randomly in the body, the dye would just diffuse. So the human body is a giant transportation system allowing energy circulation. Imagine energy circulation just like your blood. So if energy circulates like blood does, that has huge implications. With blood circulation, blockages in arteries can be catastrophic, and energy blockages are also problematic. So whenever there's, I guess you want to say blockages or like something that's going on that you feels like negatively impacting you, it's like stuck in certain points of your body. Blocked energy interferes with both mental, emotional, and physical functioning. Energy can get stuck just like a blocked artery. That's where EFT comes in, which stands for Emotional Freedom Technique. EFT draws from acupuncture and energy medicine to create a simple technique to solve energy blockages. This method is more commonly called tapping because the idea is to use your own fingers to tap energy points. So there's certain points throughout the body that they recognize as, I guess, just energy points, energy flows and stuff like that. He believes that these tapping points basically allow a clear flow of energy throughout your body like a form of reset so basically clears any form of negative energy tapping energy points like self-help acupuncture there's sort of two parts to the exercise there's the physical element of tapping but also certain phrases that you repeat as you go to give you a feel for how it actually works i'll let you hear a portion of greg himself doing the tapping routine both times I sat down with Greg to talk about mental skills training, he led me through the whole exercise. And this is what it sounds like. You're going to tap at your eyebrows and just hear the sentences. You're tapping hard enough to hear it, but not so hard it hurts. A little closer to the bridge of your nose, right in there. I choose to let go while noticed and unnoticed nerves or tension in my whole body and mind. Inside of eyes on the eye socket. I choose to let go of all noticed and unnoticed negative thinking or negative self-talk about my upcoming performance on your cheekbone. I choose to let go of all noticed and unnoticed doubt about my upcoming performance. And top lip. I choose to transform that energy into a powerful performance. I choose to be focused and fully present. Greg goes on a while longer through the rest of the tapping points and with other positive affirmations and finishing with a phrase about acknowledging nervousness but also having self-acceptance. Depending on the person, it can produce a calming effect right away. It really is individual, but often it's pretty immediate. Did you do the, the tapping? Yeah, you know, I did it quite a bit my sophomore year. 
Michael Gretler had a pretty significant turnaround from his freshman year to his sophomore season, basically doubling his batting average. Part of that was Pat Casey, as we talked about in episode two, but that season was also when Michael did tapping. It was kind of a nice thing to do like before a game or before an at-bat, if you had a little bit of nerves or whatever to get it out. Another way to say it is it's a way to manage your nervous system activity. Research is showing that physically tapping the energy points produces a calming effect. Greg was saying how there was a scientific study done and it was showing the energy points throughout the body and you could see that there was energy blockages and then they would go through the EFT tapping training and then it showed how like that energy just kind of smoothed through and began to naturally flow. In Jake Thompson's All-American season of 2017, he swore by this method. During that last season at Oregon State, I went and saw Greg every week, no matter what. I would tell him, hey, I'm feeling this, I'm a little nervous for this, a little upset about this last week, and then we'd do the tapping, kind of go through like what's upsetting me. And then for some reason, clearly it works because it immediately went away, and all of a sudden I was like focusing on like, oh yeah, I know what I want to do now. The funny thing is, tapping could be extremely helpful, but I'll admit it, it kind of feels weird to just sit there tapping your face, and you'd have to think even more so if it's a bunch of baseball players tapping together in the same room, and that's what assistant coach Dan Spencer thought. You would look around, and if somebody just walked in and saw what was going on, you'd think these guys have lost their mind. But there was a commonness about it. They felt better about doing some of those things that looked kind of odd, but their buddies were doing it too. Tapping may look somewhat odd, but the idea isn't really that different than all the other methods we've talked about. In fact, it overlaps with them significantly. Recall the self-talk formula of repeating phrases to yourself to focus on positive performance goals. Well, as you heard with Greg, part of the tapping routine is to repeat phrases out loud while you're tapping. So, I mean, when you're going through tapping, you should have positive affirmations and certain cues that you're saying to yourself as you're working through your system. Tyler Malone used the tapping exercise constantly, and especially since he was the designated hitter for much of the 2018 postseason, he had plenty of time in the dugout between at-bats to recenter himself. He connects tapping with not only the positive performance phrase, but also another method we've talked about. I feel like it's a quick form of meditation because we've talked about how a lot of us were doing meditation and stuff before the games as well, but that was usually 10, 20 minute process where going through this tapping routine took a minute or two. So tapping is a more accessible version of meditation that players like Tyler Malone could do in between at-bats. For example, in one of the final games of the season, Oregon State got into a bases-loaded situation with two outs. We'll revisit this game later on in the series, but right before the key at bat, there's a lightning strike near the ballpark and the game got delayed four and a half hours. Oregon State was trailing by a run at that point, and the guy who knew he would go up to bat once the delay ended was Tyler Malone. So what did Tyler do during that entire delay as he prepared for his at bat and tried to stay calm? Well, he went through the tapping routine. I had a lot of time in the locker room for sure, and I was definitely just kind of chilling in my locker room and doing stuff like that to kind of lock me back in and calm me down. With so much time, it wasn't just the tapping he did, but along with his teammates and led by Tyler Graham, the players meditated together right there in the locker room. So when the delay ended, Tyler Malone wasn't worried at all about his at-bat with the bases loaded and two outs. I've never felt this at peace before playing the game, and especially in, I mean, some of the biggest moments of my life, I felt the most calm I've ever been. You wonder what's gone through Tyler's mind this whole time, knowing that he'd be stepping into this situation. The 2-1 pitch to Malone. Fastball low, ball three, three and one. The 3-1 pitch to Malone. Outside, ball four, and the game is tied. We come back from the rain delay with the bases loaded, and, and we strike one and you think we're in good shape. Washington coach Lindsey Meggs brought up this at-bat in particular when talking about the plate discipline and composure of Oregon State players like Tyler Malone. I know one count we end up throwing four balls in a row that are not ideal pitches but some pitches people would swing at and uh, people talk about how athletic they are they talk about the kids that they have that are high draft picks but I mean those coaches have done a phenomenal job to get those kids to buy into a hitting plan that is second to none. The practice of tapping actually got some national exposure back in 2007, and it was an Oregon State player in the middle of it. During the 07 College World Series, the ESPN cameras zoomed in on OSU pitcher Jorge Reyes in the dugout going through his tapping routine. 
he and I had no idea he'd get caught on national TV. What was great about him is he was willing to use methods that were helping him. And he didn't worry about how it looked or what people were saying because it does look a little unusual. Jorge Reyes bought in fully to the tapping routine and the mental skills training that Greg Warburton promotes. If you watched Jorge, you know, he pitched as a true freshman in that 2007 World Series. And when he came into the season, he didn't know if he'd even pitch for Oregon State. Not only did he pitch as a freshman, Reyes won two games in Omaha and earned the College World Series Most Outstanding Player Award. And that brings us to the story of another Oregon State pitcher who also had some uncertainty about if he'd play much his freshman year, but eventually came up big on the grandest stage in college baseball. Eleven years after Jorge Reyes's outstanding freshman campaign, this OSU pitcher made use of mental skills training and it paid dividends within his freshman year. This player's story intertwines Alan Jaeger's process, Greg Warburton's philosophy, and basically every mental conditioning method we've talked about, all working together in one player's performance over one season. In this case, a pitcher by the name of... Kevin Abel, eight shutout innings and comes off to a standing ovation. You know, I've coached a lot of players throughout the years, but he's probably one of the most competitive individuals that I've ever coached. Robert Lovato is the head coach at Madison High School in San Diego. About a decade ago, Lovato noticed a young ball player named Kevin Abel. Lovato watched Kevin as a middle schooler and then coached him in high school. His freshman year, he was still just growing into his body, but his sophomore years really, really started developing as a quality pitcher. He was actually at that point in time working out with Ian Clarkin, who was a first rounder with the New York Yankees, and he was getting some quality coaching by his father, Jim Clarkin. It was around that time that Kevin started developing what would later set him apart as a pitcher. You know what, he really started developing a nice curveball and a changeup. Most kids want to run the radar up to 90 miles an hour, and Kevin ended up doing that, but his arsenal of three tremendous pitches made him nearly untouchable in high school, posting an ERA below one over his last two years at Madison High. Knowing he would get drafted out of high school, Kevin prepared to choose between signing with a pro team or heading to college for at least three years. He was getting phone calls in the second round his senior year, and he turned down you know, seven figures to go to Oregon State. But in the end, Kevin wasn't drafted in the early rounds, and it didn't turn many heads when he was finally selected in the 35th round. That's still an accomplishment to be drafted at all, but the 35th round is not exactly superstar status. Behind the scenes, though, the thing that moved Kevin Abel down the draft boards was the pro clubs knowing he probably wouldn't sign. Kevin Abel had his mind made up. Either he gets drafted really early, or he's going to OSU. And when he didn't get selected in the very early stages of the draft, the teams knew it wasn't worth wasting an early or middle round pick on him, so they waited until using a late round flyer pick that they could afford to lose. Kevin already had a number in mind of what a team would have to offer him to pull him away from college, and when the Padres drafted him in the 35th round, there was little doubt that Kevin Abel would turn them down. Kevin, you know, Kevin had a number. He never told me his number, but he had a number that he was sticking to. And, you know, it had to be something that was really going to tear him away from Oregon State. You know, it wasn't there. And so he went on and, you know, history was made. Kevin had a high standard for himself and what he wanted to accomplish. You know what? He always wanted to go to Oregon State and win a College World Series. I mean, he always talked about that when he was in high school. So Kevin passed up on the pro contract and headed to Corvallis. Once he arrived, teammates like Adley Rutschman and Michael Gretler took notice of the youngster's arsenal. Oh my gosh. I, I mean, I remember facing him in the fall and uh, just, you know, seeing the changeup, seeing the curveball, seeing the fastball. You know, the combination he has is, uh, is extremely hard to hit. We all knew from the second that he came on campus in the fall that year that he had really, really special stuff. His changeup, his curveball are both plus pitches for him, and I'm sure he'll be the first one to tell you. It was just about throwing strikes, getting ahead, and then being able to use those weapons of his. You could tell he's a student of pitching. He understood what he had to do to get people out, and that places him ahead of a lot of kids his age. I went there during the offseason, and I watched him throw. Jake Thompson played his last year at OSU in 2017, so he was never teammates with Kevin Abel, but at one point, Jake came back to Corvallis, talked with pitching coach Nate Yeski, and saw Kevin Abel before Kevin made his collegiate debut. Yes, he was like, this guy is a really, really good changeup, one of the best I've ever seen. Whenever someone says that, you're like, oh yeah, right, let's see it. And I saw it, and I was like, oh, okay, that's pretty good. 
Later on, Jake's opinion went from measured approval to much greater appreciation. I'm like, wow, that's actually a really, really good changeup. Even better, the thing that really set Kevin apart was his demeanor. I can tell you this, he wasn't scared of anybody. You know, he wasn't as scared to throw inside at you and he wasn't as scared to throw at you if he had to. One thing about him is he just truly believes he's better than everyone else when he's on the mound and he just has that confidence. Not arrogance about it, but just the great confidence on the mound. Despite the early showing of talent and his dogged self-confidence, Kevin did not waltz into the Oregon State Clubhouse as a freshman and become a flawless, unflappable player. In reality, the beginning of Kevin Abel's college career was somewhat rocky. In Kevin's first career start, he walked five batters and gave up four runs to Hartford. For the next two months, his longest appearances were only three or four innings, and in those games, he gave up multiple runs each time. He kind of struggled early on. He always had really good stuff in the fall, and we knew he had really good potential, but he hadn't put it together. Halfway through the year, you know, we were pulling our hair trying to get him in the zone. You know, we just kept telling him how good he could be. Kevin Abel was definitely a guy that, of course, struggled a little bit during the middle of the season. He was a really highly touted prospect coming in. It was obvious he had what it took to get it done. And I think you saw flashes of the brilliance really early on. But he also struggled with some command. He struggled with some confidence. And throughout really the first half of that season, the results were incredibly mixed. If you watch Kevin Abel's production, you know, at the beginning of the season and, and to the middle of the season, he was in his own head. The issue of Kevin Abel getting in his own head, as Tyler Graham called it, was most apparent during an early April matchup in Tucson, Arizona. He had had some memorable outings earlier in the year. The most famous one was that game down in Arizona. April 8th, 2018, Oregon State versus Arizona, the rubber match of a three-game series. And in the sixth inning, it's Oregon State 4, Arizona 2. Kevin Abel entered in relief and promptly struck out the side. He returned for the seventh inning and struck out the side again. Then Kevin Abel came back out for the eighth inning. Actually, I was watching that Arizona game where he kind of came unglued a little bit. They had a nice lead and started walking. I think he walked the bases loaded. In Arizona, he pitched really good the first two innings, and then he had a third inning where he, you know, he blew it a little bit, I think. You know, he gave up a few walks, a few knocks, and kind of got in his head. I remember in Arizona, we had the game one, and he's in there, and he's dialed up, and he's throwing the heck out of it, and all of a sudden, ball four to the nine-hole guy, hits the leadoff guy before we can even get the guy up in the bullpen. He's loaded the bases. We were at the University of Arizona. He struck out the side. We're beating him, about to beat him in the series, and he's taunting the dugout, comes out the next half, loads the bases, and bows the game. Arizona was John at him, and they were John back at each other. and Got into some verbal fisticuffs with the bench, and Adley Rutschman had to go almost rope him off the field like a calf in a rodeo. Kevin Abel gave up three runs in the eighth inning with a couple wild pitches, two walks, and a hit batter. Oregon State would go on to lose the game. We had to go out on a limb, throw him into some games, and extend him a little bit. Pat Casey wasn't phased by Kevin Abel's missteps, and he actually kept giving Kevin opportunities. Then we had to come back with him again after that just to show him that, you know, if we got confidence in you, then you, somewhere along the line you're going to have to get some confidence in yourself. Kevin Abel normally has plenty of confidence in himself, which is perhaps his best attribute, but also tough to maintain. After all, if you believe you're the best player and then have a bad outing, how do you reconcile that belief with the game that just happened? Kevin Abel had been so good in high school, there weren't many examples like the Arizona game in his past. I think he was a little bit, you know, hesitant to maybe not do well and get knocked around. Kevin Abel felt the burden of failure partway through the year. I remember having a phone call with my with my mom. I was mentally just breaking down. I was, I had never been so lost playing a game of baseball. When you designated most of your life towards doing something and it for the first time ever, it was really not necessarily pleasant. Yeah, it was it was hard to do other things because you're always kind of thinking about that and wanting to fix it and you're putting a lot of time towards figuring it out. Although normally so sure in his abilities, Kevin became so focused on what might happen wrong, he often forgot about what might go well. I think once we were about a month into the season, there was times where I could look back. And I was telling myself, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And instead of focusing on the good of, if you throw this pitch right down the middle, best hitters are going to hit it three out of ten times and still going to be all right. 
Before Kevin Abel realized that, he pitched with too much anxiety. He worried about failure and then experienced failure. But the funny thing about failure is Kevin Abel still woke up the next morning. His life wasn't over, his career wasn't over, his coaches didn't give up on him, Pat Casey kept throwing him in games. So Kevin Abel crashed and then saw what happened next. Once he understood that that's not fatal, and, and he, he made some unbelievable adjustments. When they fail, they need to understand that failing is okay. Logan Ice learned that lesson when he was a star catcher for OSU a few years prior. Failure's a good thing, because if everyone was just good at everything and always was 100%, I, I killed that. Oh, I killed that. That was great. I'm awesome at that. Everyone would be at the top of the world. There would be no high-level athletes. There would be no high-level business people, because everyone would be the exact same, because everyone would be good at everything. Take the negatives and turn them into a positive and see how when you fail, it's good. Don't dwell on the bad thing. Just take that bad thing. Let's turn it positive and just go again. I'm going to fail. Great. Awesome. I've gotten better. Keep going up the hill. Keep going up the hill. Logan I saw that theme play out in Kevin Abel's freshman year. Successful people don't get to where they get just because they landed on it. There was all failure. There was all low points for all of them at some point. I mean, Abel could have cashed it in and called this it. I'm not meant to play Pac-12 baseball. I'm not meant to pitch in the College World Series. I don't even know if I'm meant to be doing anything in college baseball. Maybe I should just be a regular student. But that's not who he is. In order to learn how to succeed at a higher level, Kevin first had to fail. And then he stopped playing scared of failure. I just decided I was I was done with playing hesitant, being scared, and all that kind of stuff, and started really committing to the process and working that mental game. That's when Kevin Abel moved to the do zone of performance, as Greg Warburton would call it, rather than focusing on the possibility of failure. Instead of, I'm going to command this pitch here, it was, don't miss. That's the wrong, you cannot have that mentality and be successful at higher levels. Fellow pitcher Jake Mulholland was a first-hand witness to Kevin Abel's transformation, especially Kevin's shift from don't to do. You have to turn the don't do this into I'm going to do this, right? Once you have do not or don't mess up, you kind of already defeated yourself in a sense. I was giving the opponent too much credit myself, not enough. Once I kind of made that switch, I started to slowly get better and better at maintaining that process. The results were a little bit better. So I remember from that point on, it seemed like a turning point to me. The Arizona game, which Joe Casey is referring to, could be called a turning point because that was the worst it got for Kevin Abel. But if you want to use the phrase turning point to describe when things actually got better, then that moment came a little later. 23 days after the Arizona debacle came another Kevin Abel appearance of perhaps even higher magnitude on May 1st, 2018. That was a big, big turning point for me. Kevin Abel was still not one of the three pitchers in the starting rotation, but on May 1st, he got a chance in relief against in-state rival Oregon on a Tuesday evening. I spoke to Kevin the night before a midweek game against Oregon. Alan Jager, the mental skills coach who worked heavily with Oregon State players in 2018, remembers this Oregon game in particular and how Kevin's efforts in building a mental process started paying dividends. Kevin at the time was, was not starting. You know, he was working on getting back. And so we kind of built his process. We started really talking about meditation. He started to join the group with Tyler. Fortunately, he really got it. He got this process approach that we teach clear as day. And the next day out, what I remember, he dominated. Kevin didn't even start the game, but he entered an emergency long relief in the second inning. Kevin lasted into the eighth inning, keeping the Ducks scoreless the entire time, allowing one hit. Abel delivers on the inside corner with a fastball, strike three called, two down. Some serious movement on the fast one from Kevin Abel. When Kevin entered the game, Oregon led 3-0. When he left, it was 4-3 OSU, and the Beavers held on for the victory. And it's almost as if the staff looked at him and said, okay, he's clicking, he looks good. And, and then if you go back and track after that Oregon midweek game, he was a great representation of creating a very simple plan that is very based on this, what we call the process, a few constants rather than a million interchangeable variables, which is sort of how we build it. And we just get them to really focus on a few things that they can control. And Kevin got it. The Tuesday game against Oregon was when it first shined through. And yeah, there was no going back after that. 
That game was May 1st, and if you compare the month of April to the month of May, it's as stark of a contrast as you can get. He threw three times as many innings in May as the month before, yet he still gave up fewer earned runs. And it got even better towards the end of the season, but instead of telling you this one more absurd statistic, I'm going to tell you with the reaction of one of his teammates, Michael Gretler. I'm going to tell you a stat, and I just want to get your reaction on this statistic. Right. Kevin Abel's ERA, just in games from the end of March to the end of April, was 7.3, but in his last seven appearances, his ERA was 0.56. It's crazy. I mean, it was a complete different guy from early in the year, you know, even in the fall. Like, we saw glimpses of it in the fall, but he never could kind of sustain it. But when that day hit, from there on, the guy was just nailed. I look at him as kind of like almost my career in a short amount of time. Jake Thompson had his breakout season as a senior. Kevin Abel could see examples like Jake Thompson's and commit to the same process, but earlier on, having seen what it could do for others. It took me four years to figure that out. He basically did that in a year. We talked about when Kevin Abel's transformation happened, but we've really only scratched the surface in how it happened mentally. To Kevin's credit, he told everyone during the season there was no cause for his improvement other than the mental game. Nothing's changed physically. I'm not throwing any differently. I don't look any differently. I'm not throwing eight miles an hour harder. It's all just been up here. A lot mentally, that's for sure. That answer was after his first postseason start in 2018, one of his best performances of the year. And the funny thing was, Kevin would keep on getting that same question over and over. Why are you so different, Kevin? What changed? Why are you so much better? And he'd give almost a carbon copy answer. Nothing's changed physically. Nothing's changed. I mean, I'm not throwing any new pitches or anything. It's all been in my head. Two years after those press conferences, I asked Kevin, did it feel like people who asked you that question just didn't really grasp what you meant? I guess maybe a little bit. I think it was just the answer just wasn't good enough. That's why they kept asking. They don't understand how much of this game is mental. Well, I like Kevin's answer, and I wanted to hear more. A lot of it started out with just not being so hard on myself, pitch to pitch. When I did make a mistake, I would let it go and not taking that negative thought and that negative energy into the next pitch. We've seen how critical self-confidence is for success. Well, it tends to be that the people most invested in the mental game also have the biggest jumps in self-confidence. I have the best head coach in the country that believes in me, and I got the best pitching coach in the country that believes in me. I got the best team behind me that believes in me. And so it was just me that needed to believe in me. And once that happened, things started to click, and I was able to pitch the way that I know I can pitch. He's right. You know, until you believe that you can do that, it's pretty hard to do it. In the beginning, probably didn't have the confidence to throw the fastball where he wanted, to think that he could throw the ball by people. And you have to pitch a little while to understand how good that you might be. And I think as the season went along, more and more he gathered confidence in what he does. Kevin Abel ended his season by starting in one of the College World Series Finals games, and we'll relive these games more fully towards the end of this series, but we can't talk about Kevin Abel's progression without noting he had quite the performance in that game, a complete game shutout. And Kevin Abel's efforts in the mental game were visually evident on the biggest stage. And you could just tell in his face. It's almost like he kind of had no emotion at some point. He was just, he was so in tune with his process that he kind of became his process. He looked very unusually calm. If you saw his face on the mound and how composed he was, it was like he was playing a video game. His mouth was closed. He was calm. His heart rate was down. He wasn't stressed out. And some kids can be like that for a couple pitches or a couple innings, but he was able to sustain that for the entire game. And, and that's when you know you finally have conquered the mental game. Coming in as a freshman, it's tough. Kevin's always had unbelievable stuff. Uh, I think that just the strides he's made mentally are unbelievable. And, uh, you know, that's the toughest part to improve in the game of baseball is mental. Just to see how he's progressed, you know, I'm super proud of him. I feel so fortunate to be able to catch him. And like he says at the end of the year, I don't throw any harder. I don't have any more pitches, but I focused on my mind and the mental game, and, and that took him to the top. The crazy part is there was not much time elapsed between his lowest moments and the performance you just heard Zach Taylor, Jake Mulholland, Adley Rutschman, and Tyler Graham discuss. We're not talking about Kevin Abel's development from season to season. We're talking about April to June. 
Kevin Abel had become a new pitcher in two months. I think people don't know how much you can actually truly like get better during the season. He did that, and I mean, he was our best pitcher in the postseason. Joe Casey saw how Kevin's transformation came in large part from the meditation sessions designed by Alan Jager. Kevin did a lot of stuff with him that helped. He figured out that mental side of things, and it started keeping him calm on the mound and not getting you know too ahead of himself. He went from being a kid who just had some good stuff to just being a dude on the mound. Meditation wasn't the only method Kevin Abel used, but also the breathing technique. Anytime you see me fall behind a count like 2-0, and I misfire two pitches, you'll see me step way behind the mound and kind of regather myself, take a deep breath. And that's what I'm doing. I'm just resetting myself, reminding myself that it's not the end of the world. I think of all the Beaver pitchers, the most 3-0 counts would be Kevin Abel. And he comes back from them often. There was one game late in the year when Kevin Abel allowed his first hit of the day, then he got behind in the count to the next batter, and the next one, and the next. In fact, seven hitters in a row he got behind in the count to each one, and he got all of them out. I have been impressed tonight by Kevin Abel in a lot of ways, but one of which is he has fallen behind a few hitters, but he's pitched to contact and not given in, and that got him in some trouble earlier this year when he didn't do that. Kevin Abel says that resilience and the ability to reset in the middle of an at-bat comes from the breathing technique. And the more that Kevin started using it, the more the habit developed. I had to practice that for weeks until it became almost second nature. Once that habit was established, not only were the negative emotions identified and flushed out, in Kevin Abel's case, he completely flipped the script to start redefining negative situations as positive ones. I was able to focus on myself and then kind of redirect or change the energy to where it was more positive. So now it's instead of saying, damn, I didn't make that pitch, it's, well, that really sets up this now, or this is what it did to the hitter and this is how it benefits me and things like that. Once I was able to do that, I never really had struggles where I was throwing four pitches in a row that were just all over the place. You know, I was able to bounce back and not get too far away from losing a hitter or letting an inning blow up on me and things like that. Kevin Abel used meditation and breathing exercises to stay calm during games and reframe everything happening in positive terms. And those techniques overlapped with the practice of self-talk. Kevin worked with Alan Jager to develop a short anchor statement, just three phrases that Kevin would repeat to himself on the mound. For me, it was a three-step sort of thing for myself, and it was breathe, uh, just to relax my body and kind of be in the moment. It was stay tall, which was just a mechanical cue for me, keeping good posture. That was usually my, my big issue mechanically when I would get out of wax was I would start to break posture and stuff. But that was just a little reminder for myself, and then it was dominating. I wasn't up there to just do good enough or be a part of something. I was there to make the opponent feel bad for being on the same field. As Kevin developed his process with Alan, you started to see him go up that mountain slowly and surely. And from the time that he got that to the end of the season, it was remarkable how far he went. I was extremely impressed with Kevin tonight. Um, you know, just the strides he's made over the season. A lot of you guys haven't been able to see him, but, you know, at the beginning of the season, you know, no one would have said that he would have been starting in the College World Series. But, you know, here he is on the biggest stage there is. And, uh, you know, just extremely impressed. And I was fortunate to be able to catch him and, you know, see him work tonight. Man, were they able to deploy him in those situations where his confidence grew, his results improved. Whatever Kevin was able to build with Tyler Graham and Alan Yeager to, to change his mental approach, I mean, he was just a completely different pitcher. And the entire postseason, he was uh, he was one of the best pitchers in the country. So it, it truly was a remarkable transformation. It wasn't an overnight thing. It took a couple of months or it took a month and a half. It took a couple of starts of, you know, not having success right away, but he stuck with it. And then you can see the results come and couldn't have happened at a better time for us and for him. He would struggle to have a relief appearance and it looked like he was nervous when we were playing a random team on a Tuesday. And then from that, that was probably the biggest jump I've ever seen someone make. And it was all mental, really. I think he found something he didn't even know he had in him. Once that came out, it was over. It shows what the mental game can do for you because he dedicated to it. It was the only thing that was prohibiting to him. You think of it like this. In life, everything happens twice. First in our minds, then in real life. That's what Kevin was able to do. He practiced. He believed in his abilities to actually do it, and he did it.
Not only did Kevin transcend his previous struggles, the effort it took to work through those difficulties made him grow in areas he never would have needed to had things been easy for him from day one. It makes it all the more worth it that I was able to push through all that and get to the other side. That's going to transfer over to life in general, too, because he's going to find himself, once he's done with baseball, a long way down the road, he's going to walk into a business situation, he's going to fall flat on his face, and he's going to wonder, shoot, am I meant to do this? Well, he'll have the same approach. He'll understand, well, look at me back in college. I'm going to fall on my face, I'm going to get back up, I'm going to keep moving forward, and he'll be successful in whatever he does there, too. Logan Ice, being a few years older than Kevin, can see how fortuitous Kevin's difficulties may be down the road. And even for Kevin himself, he's already seen that come true. I feel really good to be able to know I've gone through that and know that probably the hardest part of my career is behind me. I would say that was harder than rehabbing Tommy John. When I talked with Kevin, he had not pitched since his surgery in 2019. Tommy John surgery is invasive and requires a tedious rehab process. It's totally possible to return to top form after having the surgery, but not easy to do so. Still, Kevin was ready to do exactly that, in large part because of the difficulties he faced in 2018. And that wasn't the only area Kevin Abel showed more maturity because of his journey in baseball. Even relationship issues became less problematic. I mean, everyone always says baseball teaches you lifelong lessons, and I think the funniest thing was my girlfriend was telling me I was not doing well with communicating or something like that, and I was like, oh yeah, that's perfect, I'll do better, and I was like, why didn't you tell me sooner? She said, well, I didn't want to tell you you're doing something wrong. I was like, I get told I'm doing something wrong every day at practice field four hours a day, so it doesn't make it any different. So I think just you learn how to take criticism, you learn how to, to manage yourself in a pressure situation. And that's the best part about athletic competition and the mental game in particular. The concepts we've been talking about are not just true in baseball. This is like life stuff. This isn't just baseball stuff. This is everything. As I've moved on and continued to grow in this game, you know, I think that's the biggest thing I've learned, Josh, is this mental game. I haven't stopped growing and learning. I've just continued to educate myself. I still do it. I still meditate. I still try to get to this quiet mind because when I'm quiet and my mind's under control, I'm not frustrated. I'm not lashing out on people. I'm in control of my emotions and I can think clearly and make the right decisions. Kyle Novak finished his baseball career in 2018. He's still involved in the sport now as a coach, and while his mental game may look a little different, he might change his anchor statement or visualize with other goals in mind, but he still uses those same fundamentals. A lot of those anchor statements have changed. You know, I think a lot of playing sports my whole life, I was defined by what I was doing. When I got out of playing, I started to realize that sports and things don't define my life. And with that perspective, that is an anchor statement I have today is, you know, I'm not defined by what I do, how, how my success is, how I get this kid to hit in a cage. Like, I'm not defined by that. What defines me is my own philosophy that I've created for my own life. And that's how I judge my performance. You know, was I authentic? Did I have courage? Was I willing to do whatever it took? And then valuing the things that I value in life and really judging my performance based on those. This has been episode six of Dynasty in the Woods. Starting next episode, we switch gears to chronologically relive the 2018 postseason. The dramatic moments, the highlight plays, the clutch hits, with the radio calls from Mike Parker and hearing from the players themselves talk about the moments they were involved in. That won't start until next week, but you can listen to those episodes right now. Take a look at the episode notes to find out more. Please help spread the word about this documentary series, tell a friend about it, and leave a review. I've been your host, Josh Warden. Thanks to Hank Hager for helping set up some of the interviews and his work on behalf of the OSU baseball program. Radio clips credited to Learfield IMG College. Have a great day, everyone, and let's talk next week.